I am so excited this morning to start walking through uh, the first letter of Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find 1 Peter. So you flip to the New Testament, maybe you'll hit Hebrews, then you hit James, and you'll hit 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. As you're finding 1 Peter, I'm just give you some, some, some overview. Uh, we're we're going to cover some foundational ground this morning uh, on what it is that Peter wants to say to the elect exiles of the dispersion. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, but you should have found 1 Peter by now. Let's just read the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are thankful that we get to gather this morning and open your word. We're grateful that we do not do these things alone, but we do them in your presence, with your enabling power, with the illuminating work of the Spirit, opening the eyes of our hearts to see and behold your truth. Lord, your word has power, and we pray that you might transform us by it today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Peter is the author of this letter, as we know by the title, First Peter. And verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter, as we probably all know, but just so that we're on the same page, was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He walked with Jesus and did ministry with him for years. We know Peter to be the spokesman of the disciples. Regularly, when the disciples have something to ask Jesus, they say, Hey, Peter, why don't you ask Jesus this? He was one of the inner three disciples among the twelve, Peter, James, and John, who did things that the other disciples did not do, like see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory. And here, after the Holy Spirit came upon him at Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2, Peter is known as an apostle. Now that word is really important for us because the, the office of apostle is a unique role. Peter, as the other apostles, had unique authority in the life of the early church. Their word, their teaching was unique. It had power, it had authority because of their God-given office. And so his letter to the Christians among the dispersion here is incredibly important because it is the inspired word of God. So don't miss this. We, we know this is the Bible. We know that this is God's word to us. But Peter in particular, as we're reading his letter, is not just writing as a man. He's not just writing as a leader in the church. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, his words to an original audience 2,000 years ago have timeless power and truth for us today. It is always worth our time to dive in to study God's Word because it is living and active, Hebrews tells us. It is timeless in its ability to communicate to us. 
Now, he's writing, uh, according to verse 1, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Specifically, he's writing to believers who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. So those areas that he mentions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these are all regions or territories. If you look on a world map and see the country of Turkey, all of these regions would fit basically into that place. And they're listed in a circle. Uh, so they're not listed in any kind of order uh, of importance. They're, they're listed by order geographically. Because as we'll read later, later uh, in 1 Peter 5, uh, there's a man named Sylvanus who's going to take this letter and carry it throughout the region. So all of these churches from all of these areas will read the letter from Peter carried by Sylvanus. It was a, a tour that he was going to take around these areas. Now, we don't need to miss that Peter is writing to Christians. Uh, This is not a a letter for just the whole world. This is a letter that Peter is writing specifically to believers. He's writing to an original audience, these elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, But by the power of the Spirit, he's also writing to us. He's writing to believers in 2021. Those believers chosen by God experience this world as an exile, That's what Peter's getting at. He says, to the elect exiles, to the chosen exiles. Now, why is it that believers experience this world as exile? Well, it's because this place is not our home, at least not in its current state. Christians will always feel tension or out of place in a world that is corrupted by sin. So think about your own life and think about perhaps instances in your life where being a faithful follower of Jesus met Uh, was met with tension or met with perhaps persecution or met with bullying or ridicule or frustration or not being able to do certain things or having to do other things. Well, that tension that you feel when you follow Jesus in this world is not a bad thing. It is something to be expected. And so Peter starts off this letter by saying, I'm writing to the elect exiles who are dispersed among this region. This is who you are. It's not abnormal. It's not wrong. You're not doing something wrong if you feel this way. This is what life in the world looks like for a follower of Jesus. We also need to notice here in this introduction of these two first two verses that how someone is considered an elect exile according to verse 2. So look at verse 2. How do we know that this person is a believer? How do we know that these people are elect exiles? Well, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Once again, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all inseparably at work for the salvation of sinners. The Father knows us. He foreknew us. The Spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart. And the the Lord Jesus sprinkles us with his blood and leads us to obedience. Peter ends his greeting by calling for grace and peace to be multiplied to his readers. He says it right there at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, most people agree that Peter wrote this letter near the end of his ministry, which was probably the early to mid-60s AD. Now, if you kind of know generic church history, you know that Jesus died on the cross somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. So this is 30 years after the cross and resurrection of Jesus. This is, a, this is an apostle who has had decades of ministry under his belt. He's been serving as one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. 
We know from chapter 5, however, that at this point in his life, he's writing from Rome. And after all that time, after all that he's seen, after all that he's done, what Peter believes the church needs more than anything at the front end of this letter is grace and peace. That's what we need as well. We need grace. We need God's kindness and his mercy in our lives as we live them out in a broken world. We need peace as the sins of our hearts and the turmoil of the world that we live in cause strife. You may not know this, and that's okay, uh, but Josh and I were just talking about this. The denomination that we're a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, is in a season of turmoil. It's not a season of peace. And all throughout church history, the church has been either coming out of division and faction and turmoil and strife or going into turmoil and faction and frustration and strife. And so we need, as the church of Jesus Christ, grace and peace. That's how he starts the letter. So let me run through the next couple of verses, and we'll see some big areas that we're going to hit over and over as we read through this letter together this summer. So let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, there is a ton in this passage, but we're going to hit three major points. If you're taking notes this morning, the first big idea, uh, we're going to look at our life in the Lord in verses three through five, our life in the Lord. We have to respond to the glorious life we've received in Christ. It says here that he has caused us to be born again. Now, we know the story of John chapter 3 and Jesus meeting with Nicodemus at night asking, uh, how is it that a man can be born again? And Jesus says, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. There's this new birth that takes place. And Peter right here says that God has caused you and me as Christians to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And how does he do it? Why does he do it? Well, it says there in verse 3, according to his great mercy. 
It's the mercy of God that leads sinners to repentance. It's the mercy of God that brings dead people to life. It's the mercy of God that brings orphans into God's family. Not our efforts, not our abilities, not our track records or anything else. It is all God's mercy. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about hope in Romans chapter 5. And we saw that hope in the Bible is not like the world's kind of hope where we're kind of just wishing and crossing our fingers, thinking that something may happen, but it may not. That hope in the Bible is what one writer called a happy certainty. That we know that this is coming to pass. We have hope, a happy certainty. And here we have a living hope, Peter says. Of all that God has promised, we know that all of these things will come to pass. If God is faithful in the resurrection of Jesus, then God will be faithful everywhere else. Now, what is this living hope? You can find it in verse 4. It's this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. It is a glorious, rich treasure that God is protecting and guarding for you. So this treasure that he's going to give you, this inheritance of eternal life, this living hope that you're going to come into is secure because it's kept in heaven for you. And not only that, look at verse 5. Who, that's us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is our inheritance being kept for us, God is keeping us for our inheritance. He's holding, his, he's holding our inheritance in heaven, and he's holding us in his hands. Throughout Peter's letter, we will see the two-sided coin of perseverance and preservation. This is really big in the life of a Christian. On one side, you have perseverance. All throughout Scripture, and, and no less in Peter's letter, you and I as believers are called to keep the faith. We're called to stand firm. We're called to be faithful witnesses of the gospel. We're called to holiness and right living. We're called not to fall away from our life in Christ. This requires our energy, our action, our participation. We will continue in the faith if we persevere. But on the other side of that coin is the idea of preservation. And this is no less true in the life of the Christian and no less true in Scripture where we see things like, once the Father draws them to me, I will never let them go. Or what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. So while you and I are being called to persevere in our faith, at the same time, on the other side of that coin, God is holding us in, our, in his hands and will never let us go. So from our perspective, we persevere. God calls us to faithfulness and to holiness and to abstain from sin and to not fall away. But from God's perspective, he's keeping us from all these things because we are in Christ. Now, this should give you as a Christian great encouragement. It should give you great peace because you know that our God is faithful. And if God says that he will never let you go, you can rest in his keeping of you. But how is he guarding us? How is he keeping us? Well, it says in verse 5, through faith. So here's, here's maybe something you want to write down. God preserves us 
through our faithful perseverance. I'll say that again. God preserves us through our faithful perseverance. God gives you and me a gift in Ephesians chapter 2, and that gift is the gift of faith. And it's through that gift, the gift of faith, that you persevere. But God gave you that gift. And all the while, as you persevere in your faithful living, God is preserving you all the way to our full salvation in the last time. So we're born again to a living hope in Christ, rescued from death and awaiting the inheritance to come when the Lord returns. This is our life in the Lord. We're being kept and we're persevering. But Peter continues. So that's the first area we're talking about this morning, our life in the Lord. Number two, we need to talk about our time in the trial. Our time in the trial. Verse six, look at it with me. In this, that is our inheritance, our living hope, our salvation, our being kept by God, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So notice what he says about your trials and mine. All of us walk through trials. David tells us in Psalm 23, sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what do we need to know about our trials? What do we need to know about our sorrows? What do we need to know about our sufferings? First, they come in the midst of rejoicing. So it says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. So if you are living your life and you have all of these reasons to rejoice, and yet still you find yourself in suffering, you find yourself in hardship, you find yourself in a trial, something odd has not happened to you. This is the normal course of the Christian life that our lives are mingled with both rejoicing and suffering. Second, they happen for a little while. Now, some of us have trials that we have been walking with our whole life. Some of us will continue to walk in those trials for the rest of our life. Some of us have had uh, certain instances in our life where we suffer or endure hardship. But in the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan, in the grand scheme of eternity, Peter says that our trials only happen for a little while. Paul says it elsewhere when he says that our light momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So the things that we deal with in this life, the the sufferings that we endure in this life are real, they are hard, they bring us great sorrow. I'm, I'm not trying to make light of those things, but the scriptures tell us that in light of what's to come, the things that we endure in this life are light momentary afflictions. We suffer only for a little while. Third, Peter says, your trials and mine are necessary. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what's that mean? It means that if you have been grieved by various trials, they were necessary. So in the grand wisdom of God, he has seen fit to ordain your path in such a way that you walk through hardship, that you walk through suffering, that you endure various trials, but they all have a purpose. They all have a necessary function. God is doing something in you and for the world through you in the hardships that you endure. 
Now, why is this important for us to get? Because oftentimes when we find ourselves in hardship, when we find ourselves walking through trials, we wonder why. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have these problems and my friends don't? Why do I have to do these things but other people don't? Or why can't I do that thing that all of my friends are doing? Why, why, why? And it's not a bad question to ask, but a better question to ask is, Lord, what are you producing in me? Because what I'm walking through right now, your word says, is necessary. So how is it that we can find hope and comfort in our trials and sufferings by knowing that God is doing something in us through them. And fourth, we know that because Peter continues to tell us these sufferings, these trials have a purpose. They have a purpose. Look at the end of uh, the, look at verse seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trials, your suffering, your sorrows, your hardship are meant to produce in you worship for Jesus. That's what this text says. That through the proving of the genuineness of your faith as you walk through these trials, it will somehow, in God's power and wisdom, cultivate in you praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. That's difficult. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God is producing worship in us through hardship. God is testing us. He's proving our faith. And very quickly, I think I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. James tells us in just the the previous book that God does not tempt anyone. But we see here, he allows us to go through various trials for a testing of our faith. So there's a difference in scripture between being tested and being tempted. Testing, tempting. When you're tested or you're tempted, you are given some choices to make. You're given some options to choose from. A temptation is hoping that you will lead yourself to ruin and to failure. The devil tempts you to sin. He's enticing you to choose what dishonors God, to to do what brings him no glory and what cultivates up in your heart hardness and bitterness and grief. The devil tempts us. But God tests us. He provides options and choices for us so that we might be found faithful, so that we might choose the right thing and be proven as having genuine faith. It's the same way in which uh, leadership is developed in the life of a person, right? So let's say somebody has some leadership qualities that we want to cultivate in them, and I see a student who's older, and I say, well, I don't want to give them the, kind of the whole, the whole show to run, but I'm going to give them this responsibility. I'm going to give them this opportunity. Now, they can choose to do this well or crash and burn, but I'm testing their metal. I'm testing their capacities. I'm testing their leadership abilities not to harm them, but to produce in them something that will lead to something better. I want something pulled out of them, drawn out of them that is good and right. 
And it's the same way with God. He tests us. He doesn't tempt us. God's testing of your faith produces something in you. It produces this praise and glory at the honor and honor at the revelation of Jesus. How does that happen? Now, in, in the, the short answer is, I don't know. I don't know the mind of God fully. But those who have walked through the valley usually have a more intimate acquaintance with the good shepherd. When you come to the end of yourself through your sufferings and your trials and you realize, I cannot do it alone, you will have a more intimate relationship with the one who knows where to go, who does have the power, who does have the the vision to see what's ahead. God does not lead us to the valley. This is important. He leads us through the valley. He doesn't lead you to the valley just to sit there and wallow in suffering. He leads you through the valley. It's necessary for where you're going. That's what verse 8 is all about. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. That's some joy right there. If you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, that's like joyfully rejoicing in joy. That's a lot. And Peter is trying to get the point across that as we walk through the fire with Jesus by faith, we are led by his gracious hand to obtain something. Verse 9, the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. So we've talked about our life in the Lord. We've talked about our time in the trial. Necessary for a little while, producing in you genuineness of faith that leads to worship. Finally, number three, we need to look at our place in the story. Our place in the story. This is verses 10 through 12. Let me just reread those to you. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, that's the Old Testament prophets who were given visions by God and wrote them down for the sake of Israel and the sake of those to come. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, look at this, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We'll get back to that. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to Look, Peter wants you and me, students, as elect exiles, as dispersed Christians in a place that is not our home, to know where we fit. Where do we fit in this story? Where do we fit in God's story? We come after the time of the prophets. So in the Old Testament, we had Old Testament prophets who prophesied about things to come. And we come after them. We are New Testament believers who live and place their faith in the Lord on the other side of Christ's work on earth. The prophets were looking forward to Jesus. We look back at what Jesus has done. But Peter wants us to see that all this comes together. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not separate stories. It's one story. God is doing one thing throughout all of history. He is receiving the glory that's due his name through his creation and by his redemptive work. The Old Testament is not just a group of useless books for you. 
No, look again at verse 12. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets, in their faithful obedience to Christ, their faithful obedience to the Spirit of Christ in them, were not serving themselves, they were serving you. They were giving us insight and promises and glories from the Lord. Specifically, they were looking at Christ. The Spirit of Christ in them is pointing them to the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. And that same Spirit who inspired the prophets to see visions and write them down is the same Spirit who now speaks to us through this letter by Peter. The prophets saw in part, but not the whole picture. We see in the last part of verse 12 that angels are the same way. Have you ever thought about this? Like, sometimes I just feel like, I mean, if angels live in heaven with God, they can just like, hey, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? But but, but apparently, according to verse 12, the angels are looking down at us with great interest and great anticipation because they are witnessing these unfolding promises in ways that they never would have expected. So what's happening to you and to me is something that is keeping the attention of the angels. Notice, the angels are in the presence of God. Like they live in heaven, they have no sin, and yet something is catching their eye when they look at us because they're seeing their king of glory at work in ways that they've never seen. They're seeing him do something miraculous and remarkable, and they cannot wait to continue to witness it. This is our place in the story. We are God's people on this side of the cross, awaiting the fullness of Christ's resurrection. Students, we are recipients of a priceless gift. We have a clear gospel. We know that Christ has come and died on a cross and rose from the grave. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who will never leave us, never forsake us, something the angels do not have and the prophets only had in part. So what an encouragement for you and me as we walk through the wilderness of our exile together here on earth. As we dive into this letter this summer of 1 Peter, we've been given a priceless gift, a great treasure. We've been given a living hope. So let me pray for you, and we'll spend some time in discussion. God in heaven, you are the God of all grace and the God of peace. And it's according to your great mercy that you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. You've given us an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. And you are guarding us by faith for that coming salvation at the last time. God, we, we are humbled because we know there's nothing in and of ourselves that would merit your attention. We know there's nothing in us that would cause you to gaze with interest. In fact, all that we have should bring disgust. All that we have should incur wrath because we are sinners against you. But God, you are love and you are merciful and you are kind and you are good and you are gracious 
And through your foreknowledge, looking ahead and choosing a group to be exiles in this world that is not our home, you have seen fit to call us your sons and daughters. You've seen fit to keep us by your promised Holy Spirit. And you've seen fit to give us hope that your son will return in power and we will await him with worship and with praise. So Lord, I pray that as we spend time together discussing these things and more, I pray you will do a work among us, among your people for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.